I think what is different about change uh, compared to just uh, trying to get someone to buy something, for for example, or trying to get someone to do something, um, is with change, you're not only trying to get them to do something, right? You're trying to get them to buy a product, uh, use a service, um, support an initiative, whatever it might be. You also have to get them to let go of the thing that they're doing already. Uh, you know, unlike just thinking about, man, if they're selling someone something where you have to convince them the new thing is good, when you're trying to change people, you also have to convince them to let go of that old thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so the challenge of change is, is really twofold. One, we tend to be attached to the stuff that we're doing already, right? Um, uh, it's, it's just easier to stick with the products and services that we already use. Um, uh, there's a term uh, in psychology called the status quo bias. Um, uh, and what does that mean? It very simply means we have a bias to the status quo. We tend to buy the same stuff, do the same things, support the same political candidates, go to the same places on vacation, we do the same stuff again and again because it's easier. If you've ever uh, you know, had to go to a different grocery store, for example, than you usually do, it's a lot harder to shop for stuff. You know, Even if you're buying the same things, it's harder to find it because you're not familiar with the layout uh, of the store. Something as simple as just a different grocery store uh, can be very challenging. We're also attached to the stuff that we're doing uh, already, right? Uh, research, for example, in uh, uh, real estate shows that uh, people, the longer they've lived in their homes, the more they value it above and beyond market price, right? Why? You've lived in that home for so long, you become attached to it, you can't imagine letting it go, um, and your valuation for it is higher. You become attached to the old stuff. And there are also challenges on the new side, right? New things often feel risky and uncertain. And so it's not just with consumers, same at the office, right? Uh, Companies tend to stick with the projects and initiatives they've done in the past, if they're not particularly working, and they seem to be very low, they're wary to adopt new things, even if they look promising. And so this status quo bias is a big villain when when it comes to change. We're not only trying to make something new enticing, we've got to get people to let go of the past to encourage them to move forward. You're listening to the Growth Manifesto podcast, where we host in-depth interviews with business leaders, authors, industry experts, and entrepreneurs with a singular focus around business growth. At the end of each podcast, we want you to walk away inspired, to think bigger, and to have actionable takeaways you can apply to improve your business. Each episode is like a masterclass on a key topic, so make sure to browse the episodes to find the topics that are most relevant to your biggest business challenges today. This podcast is brought to you by Web Profits, a digital growth consultancy that helps challenge your brands drive growth in a complex and fragmented digital landscape. You can find out more about Web Profits at webprofits.io. Now, let's get into it. Today, we're talking with Jonah Berger. Uh, he's a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, plus he's an internationally best-selling author of Contagious, The Catalyst and Invisible Influence. He's a world-renowned expert on change, our word of mouth, consumer behavior, and how products, ideas, and behaviors catch on. Today, we'll be talking about the topic of his latest book, The Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind. Just quickly, before we get started, make sure to go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you get the latest episodes as soon as they're released. Now, let's get into it. Welcome, Jonah. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited about this topic because I definitely, as a marketer and as a business professional, would love to know how to change people's minds 
Um, so let's just jump straight in. Where did you get the idea for this book? And like, what kind of change are we talking about here? Yeah. So um, a few years ago, my life changed a little bit. Um, so as you sort of mentioned already, I'm a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Spent a lot of my time doing uh, teaching and research. Uh, a few years ago, I released a popular press book uh, called Contagious. Um, uh, and things changed for me a little bit. I used to do mostly teaching, mostly research. I started getting calls from all sorts of companies uh, and organizations from uh, big Fortune 500, like the Googles and Nikes and Apples of the world uh, to small startups. Mm. Um, and I started helping them, uh, working with them around generating word of mouth, around helping products, services, and ideas uh, catch on. Uh, but I started to realize there was a gap, right? There was a challenge that many of them had that they weren't able to solve, which at the core was they had something they wanted to change. Right? Mm. So um, if you're in marketing or in sales, you want to change consumer behavior or you want to change the customer's uh, mind. If you're uh, a leader, you often want to change organizational culture or get people to rally around a specific initiative. Um, uh, if you're a manager, um, uh, you know, colleagues want to change their boss's mind. Parents want to change their children's <laughs> mind. Startups want to change industries. Nonprofits want to change the world. But what I realized is, is change is really hard. Right? Often we push and we pressure and we cajole and yet nothing happens. Um, mm. And so the question I started asking is, well, could there be a better way? Could there be a better way to change minds and drive action, uh, not by pushing, but by doing something else? And, and that's really where the journey for the catalyst started. That's great. Um, that, that, that's super interesting because change is one of those things. Um, like if you talk about change, it's a common statement that people don't like change, right? And so now that's that side of it. But on the other side of it, it's now we're trying to affect change on somebody else, right? And so, so are we trying to help people to make a decision or are we trying to sell them on like a different way of thinking? You know, so yeah. yes, what is the change that we're trying to make <laughs> through this process? Because I want to start there because that will help to frame the whole conversation. Yeah, you know, I think what is different about change uh, compared to just uh, trying to get someone to buy something, for for example, or trying to get someone to do something, um, is with change, you're not only trying to get them to do something, right? You're trying to get them to buy a product, uh, use a service, um, support an initiative, whatever it might be. You also have to get them to let go of the thing that they're doing already. Uh, you know, unlike just thinking about man, selling someone something where you have to convince them the new thing is good, when you're trying to change people, you also have to convince them to let go of that old thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so the challenge of change is, is really twofold. One, we tend to be attached to the stuff that we're doing already, right? Um, uh, it's, it's just easier to stick with the products and services that we already use. Um, uh, there's a term uh, in psychology called the status quo bias. Um, uh, and what does that mean? It very simply means we have a bias to the status quo. We tend to buy the same stuff, do the same things, support the same political candidates, go to the same places on vacation. We do the same stuff again and again because it's easier. If you've ever uh, you know, had to go to a different grocery store, for example, than you usually do, it's a lot harder to shop for stuff. You know, Even if you're buying the same things, it's harder to find it because you're not familiar with the layout uh, of the store. Something as simple as just a different grocery store uh, can be very challenging. We're also attached 
to the stuff that we're doing uh, already, right? Uh, research, for example, in uh, uh, real estate shows that uh, people, the longer they've lived in their homes, the more they value it above and beyond market price, right? Why? You've lived in that home for so long, you become attached to it. You can't imagine letting it go um, and your valuation for it is higher. You become attached to the old stuff. And there are also challenges on the new side, right? New things often feel risky and uncertain. And so it's not just with consumers, same at the office, right? Uh, companies tend to stick with the projects and initiatives they've done in the past, if they're not particularly working, and they seem to be very loath or wary to adopt new things, even if they look promising. And so this status quo bias is a big villain when it, when it comes to change. We're not only trying to make something new enticing, we've got to get people to let go of the past to encourage them to move forward. This sounds like pretty much what every company that has been established um, needs to be doing is to to acquire customers means that they're going to have to to get the customers of other companies to come to them. So they have to overcome the status quo bias and then they have to convince them. And we'll talk about the framework shortly um, through a process, right? And so this is kind of, it's fundamental to how business actually operates, isn't it? You know, this constant change that has to happen across all levels of business. Yeah, I mean, you know, take something really simple. Uh, say you sell toothpaste uh, at the grocery store. Well, most people already have a toothpaste. Most people didn't just dis- discover brushing their teeth. And so if you're trying to get them to buy your toothpaste, you got to get them to let go of the old one and, and buy a new one. Same if you're in a B2B service uh, sector. Let's say you sell um, logistics management software or, um, uh, you know, you sell uh, back-end chemicals to a company. Well, they're probably already working with another service provider, another partner. You have to get them to let go of what they're already doing um, and switch to you. Same with internally, right? If you're uh, an employee or you're a boss or you're a manager um, and you have a new way of doing things, well, part of what you've got to get people to do is let go of that old way of doing things. You know, we're trying to support a digital transformation. Okay, well, what was the way we were doing business previously? How can we get people to let go of that, even if they're used to it, even if their compensation depends on it, and adopt this new way of doing business? And so in almost every situation, we're not just trying to get people to do something, we're trying to get them to change. Mm, Okay, well, let's then, let's jump straight into the framework now, right? Because you have created a framework for instigating change. Um, And so could you talk about, that because I will start high level because then I want to go into each of the parts and really try um, to give the listeners and the viewers some actions they can start to think about and start to go, okay, I can apply it this way. So let's start high level. Yeah. So, so I think the important thing to start with is the approach to change. Um, and so uh, I often do an exercise when I teach an executive education or I work with a large organization where I ask people to write down, hey, write down something you want to change. It can be a customer, a client's mind. It can be consumer behavior. It can be a you know employee's behavior. Whatever, whatever it is, write down something you want to change, and write down something you've tried to do or could imagine doing to try to change it. Um, and over ninety-eight percent of the time, when people write something down, they write down a version of what I'll call pushing. What do I mean by that? Well, when we have something we want to change, we think if we just push people a little more, they'll change. Let me make one more presentation, send one more PowerPoint deck, make one more phone call, send one more email, give more information, list more reasons, uh, provide more facts, uh, use an emotional appeal. Just if I could convince them or persuade them to see what I was doing is right, they will come around. And it's clear why we think pushing, 
is a great idea, right? If we're uh, in the physical world, let's say I'm, I'm in an office somewhere and I want to get a chair to move, pushing that chair is a great way to get it to go. I push the chair in the direction I want it to go. It slides across the floor um, and, it, and it moves. But when it comes to people, right? And we try that same approach. We try the same pushing of people. People don't just slide across the chair, uh, slide across the floor because people aren't chairs, right? <laughs> Often when we, push, when we push people, people don't just go ahead. They dig their heels in. They think about all the reasons why they don't want to do what we're suggesting. They resist, they counter argue. And rather than becoming more likely to change, they often become more likely to do nothing at all, to go back to what they were doing already. And so if pushing doesn't work, what does? Well, it turns out there's a nice analogy to be made to, to chemistry. Um, and I'm not an expert in chemistry. Some of your listeners may be. Uh, but, uh, you know, in chemistry, change is really hard, right? It often takes uh, eons for uh, carbon to be squeezed into diamonds or plant matter to, to turn into oil. Uh, and so in the laboratory, chemists uh, often add temperature and pressure to make change faster and easier. They squeeze those things together in the lab or they heat them up to make change happen. But it turns out there's a special set of substances that makes change happen faster and easier. These substances do everything from clean the grime uh, in your contact lenses to uh, clean the grime on your car's engine. Uh, they do everything, have won multiple Nobel prizes uh, in a variety of different uh, areas. But most interesting about these substances is not just the fact that they create change, but the way they create change. These substances don't heat things up. They don't squeeze them together. No temperature, no pressure. Instead, what they do is they lower the barrier to change. They figure out what's getting in the way of change happening, and they mitigate it. Uh, and these substances, you can probably already guess, are called catalysts, right? Um, the same thing is actually true in the social world. When we use the term catalyst in sort of colloquial social behavior, we often say, oh, someone's a catalyst. They're a change agent, right? But what a catalyst really is in the social world, it's not just a change agent. It's someone who creates change by lowering the barrier to change, by identifying the obstacles or uh, hurdles that are getting in the way and figuring out uh, how to mitigate them. And so in the process of writing this book, I talked to an amazing set uh, mm. of, of change agents. I talked to top-selling salespeople and transformational leaders and uh, startup founders, and uh, I even talked to some more unusual folks, uh, hostage negotiators, substance abuse counselors, uh, parenting experts, people who created change in the most difficult uh, of, of situations. Again and again, I saw the same five barriers come up, the same five obstacles whether someone was trying to get uh, you know, a client to change their mind or trying to get a hostage to come out with their hands up, same five sort of general types of psychological approaches. They weren't called the same thing in every industry or their area. Some people called it one thing and someone called them something else, but the same five barriers again and again. Uh, and so in the catalyst, I put them in a framework. Uh, it's called the REDUCE framework, uh, and that stands for reactance. That's the R. Uh, endowment is the E. Distance is the D uncertainty uh, is the U, uh, and the CE is corroborating evidence. Um, and these five things come up again and again, regardless of what you're trying to change. Uh, and more importantly, the word reduce is exactly what great catalysts do. They don't pressure people. They don't push harder. They don't add more facts or more figures or more reasons. They reduce the barriers to change, and by doing so, make change much more likely. We're going to go into each one of those um, shortly. Just quickly then, so it's always better to reduce the obstacles than it is to push? I would say, I would say two things. Um, uh, first of all, before we even get to the question of is it always better, I think what's interesting is we always ignore that approach, right? I mean, we have barrier blindness. When I, when I work with many companies and organizations, <laughs> they true. often know what someone didn't do, right? Um, oh, you know, the customer's not buying our product. And I say, okay, why? And I don't know. Um, you know, employees aren't supporting this initiative. Why? I don't know. 
You know, we're so focused on the change that we want to achieve. We don't even understand. We're not even aware of the barriers that are in the way. There's a great study recently that came out in the journal Nature that showed, you know, when we try to change things, most of the time we think about adding stuff. Right. Um, you know, any any change we think about, we think that adding something will solve the problem. If I'm looking at an array of dots, for example, and I want to make the left side similar to right, I add dots rather than remove them. If I'm worried about a roof falling uh, because it's uneven, I add a support rather than sort of remove a couple of other things that are in the way. Hmm. We're very focused on what we can add, ways we think we can get to what we want. Um, but great catalysts take a very slightly different approach. They didn't say, well, well, what could I do? to get someone to change. Instead, they say, well, why hasn't that person changed already? And so there are certainly cases where the barrier is information, right? I work with a lot of marketers and marketers tend to think, man, if I just give people more information, they'll change. And indeed, there are some cases where people don't have enough information. But most of the cases where we think it's actually an information problem is not actually an information problem. Often it's something quite different uh, is the problem. And so uh, we really need to understand the problem before we prescribe uh, the solution, if you will. You know, think about if you go to a doctor's office, for example, the doctor doesn't start by saying, oh, let me put a cast uh, on your leg. The doctor <laughs> starts by saying, well, well, hold on, what's what's the problem? Let me diagnose the problem. And only once I've diagnosed the problem, can I begin to provide a solution. And so same things here. We've got to get start by diagnosing the problem, understanding why uh, someone doesn't want to change. And only then can we really pres- prescribe the solution. Okay. So we begin by actually understanding um, the obstacles, the barriers that are that are holding somebody back from change, and then we apply the framework. Is that the way to think about it, or is that that's what I would say? Yes, discovery part and, of the and- framework. Yeah. And, and um, well, discovery is, uh, there's a whole appendix in the back of the book um, about sort of identifying barriers. How do we even begin to figure out what they, what they are? I was working with a big, um, uh, no, I should say big, medi- medium-sized uh, B2B company that finds machine parts a couple of years ago. So imagine you, uh, and you have a backhoe or you have a bulldozer and it breaks down and you have to find parts to, to fix it. And so they help companies reduce downtime, find parts faster and, and more cheaply. Um, and so so, you know, we started thinking about, well, what would get people to adopt it? We worked on that traditional kind of customer journey, you know, awareness, consideration, and eventually purchase. Um, but what, what you realize when you think about that customer journey is, is just like there are things you can do to move them around down that journey to really understand how to move that down that journey. You have to figure out what the barriers are in the first place, right? So one barrier might be people don't know about the service. That's clearly a barrier. Information will solve that. Another barrier could be, well, people know about the service, but they don't think they have the problem. Right? So they're aware of the solution, but they don't think they have the problem. Other people might you know, think they have the problem, but think the solution is too expensive. Other people might not think the solution is too expensive, but are worried about how it will integrate with their existing systems. Hmm. And so depending on what the problem or barrier is, there's a very different solution um, hmm. uh, that, that is necessary. Right? If, the, if the, uh, the barrier is price, well, then maybe we do an introductory offer. Maybe we lower the barrier to trial to make it easier for people to experience the value. If the barrier, on the other hand, is it doesn't integrate with the existing systems, well, it's not about price. We can actually charge more rather than less, mm. but we can charge to provide a white glove service where we come and install it and make sure it integrates with everything else. And so the more we understand about the problems, the barriers, the obstacles that are getting in the way, even across different customer segments, the more we can design solutions and initiatives that will encourage adoption. Okay. Um, that's fa- that's fantastic. Um, let's go into the framework. Um Let's go into each part. The first part is reactance. So 
Could you explain what is reactance and how this applies? Um, to change. Sure. Um, for reactants, I want to start with an example because um, uh, I think it'll help sort of crystallize what reactants is. Um, and it's an example that um, I don't know that all of your listeners would be familiar with, but at least some of them may have at least uh, heard about. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, there's this uh, product um, uh, made by a company called Tide um, uh, that you throw in, in the washing machine. So Tide is a big brand in the United States. It's a sort of washing machine powder detergent uh, brand. Uh, and a number of years ago, they noticed a few problems with laundry, um, which is uh, that people never know exactly how much detergent to add. Um, They uh, end up sort of spilling some on the counter, and it turns out that it would be better if some of the detergent went in early in the cycle and some of it went in later. Um, And so they did a bunch of uh, work in R&D and and designed these little things called Tide Pods. Um, And you guys have probably seen some version of this, whether it's in the the laundry machine or the dishwasher, but basically these little pods kind of set it and forget it. You just throw it in. You don't have to measure anything. There's no mess, no muss, Mm. no fuss. Um, they spent over $100 million in marketing, and they thought it could take a big chunk of the over billion dollar laundry industry. Okay, They released these Tide Pods, and they're doing okay, uh, but then there's a problem, which is that people are, are eating them. And I want to pause here for just a second um, because your <laughs> listeners are probably saying, well, what do you mean people are eating them? Aren't they filled with chemicals? Why would yeah, people course. be eating yeah. them? You're right. They are filled with chemicals. And yes, people were, were eating them. So there was uh, a funny video online that said they looked good enough to eat. Um, uh, there was a satirical article that had them sort of melted on top uh, of a pizza. Um, and suddenly, mostly young people were challenging one another to eat Tide Pods. This was called the Tide Pod uh, Challenge. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine you're... Uh, Tide executive in this in this situation. You're sitting there going, well, people should know not to eat these, right? I mean, wh- wh- what do we do? Um, and so what they did is they released, uh, as many companies would do, a public service announcement saying, don't eat Tide Pods. And in case that wasn't enough, they hired a celebrity, um, a football player, American football player named Rob Gronk Gronkowski, who shot a public service announcement saying, should you ever eat Tide Pods? No. What about just for fun? No, 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 no. Okay. So they told people not to do it. They hired this guy to tell people not to do it. They thought that would be the end of it. Um, well, it's interesting. If you look at the data, you see something uh, quite interesting. So there's a you know a slow increase uh, in interest in the Tide Pod Challenge um, up until the point Tide releases their announcement. Now, Tide is hoping that their announcement will decrease interest in the Tide Pod Challenge, basically make it disappear. Uh, worst case, maybe it won't have any effect, but neither of those is what happened. Um, when Tide releases their announcement, interest in the Tide Pod Challenge go up over 400%. Uh, percent. Uh, visits to poison control shoot up as well. In the next two weeks, more people to come into poison control than had in the two years prior. Uh, very simply, a warning became a recommendation, telling people not to do something in this case, eat Tide Pods, uh, actually made them more likely to do it. Now, you might be listening going, that's a funny story, but you know, I'm, I'm not selling Tide Pods. Um, and by the way, I'm not trying to get people not to do something. I'm trying to get them to do, to, to do something. Uh, but it turns out the same principles apply. Whether we're trying to get people to do something or get them not to do, to do something, when we push, they often push, push back. Um, and the reason why is something called reactance. Right? People have this internal desire for freedom and control. They want to feel like they're in the driver's seat. Right? Why did I buy a certain product? Why did I use a certain service? Why did I recommend a certain initiative? I did it because I wanted to, because mm. I thought it was a particularly good idea. But when we come in, whether we are the marketer, whether we are a colleague, whether we are advertising, whether we are a salesperson, whatever we are, when we come in and tell people what to do, it impinges on their ability to feel like they have freedom and control. 
control. Now I don't know whether I'm interested in this because I like it or because an ad told me to do it. Essentially, people have almost an ingrained anti-persuasion radar, kind of like a missile defense system uh, that goes off when they feel like people are trying to persuade them. And so they put their defenses up, right? They avoid the message, they ignore it, or even worse, they counter-argue. They think about all the reasons why doing it is a terrible, uh, terrible idea. And so essentially, if, if pushing doesn't work, what, what does, right? If selling doesn't work, what does? And so I think the key idea is we have to stop trying to persuade people and get them to persuade themselves. We have to stop trying to sell people so much, which we're very good at, and get them to buy in. Right? And, and how do we do that? Well, we have to allow for autonomy. We have to give them back some of that sense of, of freedom and autonomy. And so in the book, I think I talk about maybe four or five different ways to do that. I'm happy to talk about potentially one or two here, but I, I think the key insight is stop trying to get people to do something and make them an active participant in that process, give them back some of their autonomy, um, and doing that will encourage them to, to come along. And so what are some of those examples of what you can do um to just give them the choice instead of yeah. you trying to persuade them. And this is to all the marketers out there, especially, right. Um, that are always trying to persuade people on mass. Yeah. You know, um, so I, I'd say a couple of things and I, I love the word you used choice. Cause I think that's, that's really important. And so, um, one strategy I talk about uh, a lot is what I'll call providing a menu. Uh, and, and what do I mean by that? Well, often when we make presentations, when we're selling, ideas. Um, we often pitch one particular thing. Uh, hey, I'm a salesperson. I think you should do this. Right? Um, I think you should uh, use this service in this particular way. And this is why. When I'm a marketer, I come out there and I say, hey, you should buy this product. This product is the best, most wonderful thing ever. You should do um, uh, this thing. And so imagine we're doing that in a meeting, right? We're at a sales call. We're um, you know, pitching a client on something particular. We're telling them what we think they should do. And we're telling them all the reasons why they should do a particular thing. Uh, and same with an ad, right? Where in an ad, we list all the reasons why you should buy this, why this particular product. But think about what the listener's doing, right? Think about what we do while we're watching ads. We're not sitting there going, oh, this sounds really great. We're sitting there going, oh, well, there's no way this could be right. I mean, of course, the company would say that their product is great. No one says their product isn't great. But how do I actually know that it's great? And, if, you know, of course, that it says it'll save me money or it's, uh, you know, how they have great customer service. No one says they have terrible customer service, right? How do I actually know this is true? And so they poke and prod the argument till it comes crumbling down. But what great salespeople, what great catalysts, what great change agents do then is they don't just give people one option. They give them multiple. So let's go back to that meeting where you're a salesperson, you're pitching something in particular, and you say, hey, I think we should do this. What um, great catalysts, great change agents do is they say, hey, I think you should do X or Y. Which do you like better? Because doing that subtly shifts the role of the listener. Now they have a new job. Rather than sitting there and think about all the reasons why they don't like what you've suggested, instead, they're sitting there focused on all the reasons why they like one particular thing, right? They're sitting there thinking about which of them they like better. And because they're focused on which one they like better, they're much more likely to choose one uh, at the end uh, of that interaction, right? And this is called providing a menu. Now, if you think about when you go to a restaurant um, and they give you um, some options, they don't just tell you, well, here's what's for dinner. As I say here, which of these things would you like? Which of them would you prefer? And so you get to choose among a limited choice set. Now, you don't get to choose anything you want. If you go to a Japanese restaurant, you can't have Italian food. If you go to an Italian restaurant, you can't have Chinese food. There's a limited set of options that you get to choose between. But because you're focused on the choices you get to have, 
you don't focus as much on the choices that are unavailable. Right? By focusing on the options that you could choose, you're much more likely to pick one at the end uh, of the day. And so in some sense, you're choosing the choice set. Yes, you are giving people choice, but you're not giving them unlimited choice. You're not saying do whatever you want. You're saying, hey, which of these things do you like better? And because you're focusing their attention on things you want them to do, they're much more likely to do one of those things uh, at, by, at the end. That makes sense um, for the one-on-one perspective, it seems like. But what if you're trying to change the market or trying to get the market to make a decision? Like, like is this part of the framework kind of applicable to change across segments? And yeah, if so, I mean, how, you know? Yeah, I think this, um, this question or this idea uh, of asking more questions uh, and uh, giving people options is a really powerful one. I think so often as marketers, we're used to telling people why they should do something rather than asking them more about what they need and using that to provide solutions that are more likely to, to fit for them. Right? So um, there's another strategy I talk uh, a lot about, which is ask, don't tell. Um, uh, and um, I think a good example of this, there was a startup founder I was talking to a couple of years ago who was trying to motivate her team to work harder, to stay late. There was a sprint, you know, they were launching an, uh, a new version of their, their product and they needed everybody to sort of put in extra hours to, to get there. Um, and so she kept saying, hey, you know, we need to work harder. We need to work harder. And people are like, you know, I don't want to work the weekends. Nope, no thanks. I'm, I'm not interested. Um, and so she was trying to figure out how to get them to change, how to get them to come around. And so she ended up calling a meeting and she started with a question, rhetorical question. You know, what, what kind of company do we want to be? A good company or a great one? Now, uh, you know how everyone's going to answer that question. They say, oh, great one, of course. A great, great company. She says, okay, well, then how do we get there? She asks them a question. And then they start having a conversation about how they can actually get there. And questions do a couple things, right? First, you're, you're very right. In, in one-on-one situations, they allow you to collect information, right? Um, uh, they allow you to figure out, well, why does someone want to do this particular thing? What are the things these people are, are worried about? Rather than assuming you know all the answers, Questions allow you to collect information that helps you target your information uh, and your message uh, to the person who you're trying to change. So that's one uh, powerful aspect uh, of questions. But questions also do something else, which is they encourage commitment to the conclusion. So uh, rather than you telling people what to do, which they're not going to listen, you're asking them how they feel about something, which is going to encourage them to think about how they feel, right? Uh, And share uh, how they feel. But once they've shared how they felt, right? Then when you come along, you say, great, Uh, the boss in this case, fantastic. Everyone's suggesting we stay late. Um, uh, Everyone's saying, you know, how can we become a better company? We have to work a little harder. Some of you said we need to stay late. Great, let's do that. Now it's harder for people to say, I don't want to do that because they came up with it in the first place. And so in some sense, it's, it's similar to that idea of guided choice. It's guiding people down a journey rather than telling them, hey, do this. It's asking a question uh, in, in a marketer's case that might encourage them to go to a website to find out more, um, but it's encouraging them to walk down a journey with you rather than telling them right at the outset, which is going to turn to turn them off, right? It's encouraging them to follow a process or move in a direction, which you think will help get you to that end solution that is you, rather than sort of turning them off at the beginning by telling them uh, what you think they'll want uh, and making them less interested in, in doing it. Yeah, right. And so it's really, um, you're really trying to, not tell them what to do you're trying to get them to choose what to do that's like the the 
the difference. Is that right? It's like, it's not pushing them because then they're going to go all defensive mode. Um, instead of that, you're creating options so they can choose their own adventure. But I guess you got to do it tactfully because like a lot of people have learned about like, would you like option A or option B? And they know that they've, you know, they've been created. I mean, like, I think I've done that with my son now for a couple of years. He's seven yeah. and he already knows, well, I want option C, you know, I'm like, okay. So, so there'll be, you know, like smart ways of how to do this, right? Like it's not, you know, just go out there and just go, cool. There's option one, option two, but, but like, but it sounds like it's take people um, through a journey. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I'd say, I'd say a couple of things. Uh, first of all, if I could give you all the answers uh, in 30 minutes, there wouldn't be a need for a whole, a whole book, right? It would yeah. be much shorter. Um, uh, and obviously, like anything else, it's about how you apply it. So let's take questions. Um, the boss could have asked a lot of questions. The boss could have asked, do you like working on the weekend? And everyone would have said, no, mm. right? And so it's not just about asking questions, about asking the right questions. Same about choices, right? It's not about giving people choices. Um, sometimes people say, oh, I've got it. Great, perfect. I want people to do A, and I know people hate B. And so I'll just ask them, hey, which do you prefer, A or B? Mm. And they're stuck. They're going to have to choose A because mm. they hate B. Well, then your son does what many people do when you give them a false choice, which say, no, thanks, I'll pick C, right? If instead what you do is you give people a real choice, you say, hey, look, here are two options, both of which are moderately appealing. Which one do you prefer? Then mm. someone's going to go, huh, interesting. Which of these do I prefer? And because they're focused on real things that they might actually want to do, right? They're more likely to make that choice. I mean, we have a three and a half year old and similar things. Um, uh, you know, uh, which, which thing do you want for dinner, right? Which of these three options do you want for dinner? Um, uh, making him more likely to pick one. We're not saying, would you prefer to have dessert rather than dinner? Because he'd probably say <laughs> yes to that question. And we're also not giving him, you know, two things we know he's going to hate. I don't know, rocks sticks and what we want him to eat. Mm. We're giving him two or three things that are pretty decent. Yeah. Um, and he goes, huh, interesting. Okay. Well, these are pretty decent. Which do I like better? And because he's a participant in that process, he's more likely to go along. I, I was teaching um, a group of executives a few weeks ago and someone said to me, they said, oh, it's really funny. You know, my boss loves feeling um, like they participated in a process. They love feeling like the idea was theirs. I said, well, hold on. It's not just your boss. Everyone likes feeling like an idea was theirs. I think often internally, you know, we want to have ownership of things that get adopted. We want it not just to be a project, but our project. Mm. But sometimes giving something away is the best way to get people to do it. Because yep. the more they feel like it was their idea, the more they feel it was their choice, the more like they feel like they came up with it, they have ownership of it. They're going to support it. They're going to see it through. Whereas if it's your idea, your thing, your, well, they're doing it to help you out. Well, then they're not as invested in it and they're not as likely to go along. Yeah, that's um, a fantastic point around there have to be, you know, some really fantastic options to choose from. And I think, you know, it may be hard for people to think about how they can apply, but I'm sure that there have been quite a few people that have had this um, not done to them, but they've experienced it on the other side. Like, you know, there's some people I work with that I know that they know how to do this extremely well, where like I think I'm coming up with the idea and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. You know, it was your idea, but that was well done because like, I feel fantastic about it instead of saying, no, that's not the thing which I want for some unknown reason, right? Like, and so I think it's easy for people to understand themselves in terms of how they would respond to somebody else kind of um, providing them options or providing them false options. That's fantastic. Let's jump to uncertainty. 
Um, that was the other one that you mentioned. So let's talk about that quickly. So could you explain what that is? Yeah. So and at certain days, the reason I wrote this book in, in, a, in a sense. So I was, I was working with lots of clients. Um, I started sort of uh, applying a certain set of strategies that I, uh, there's an old book called Diffusion of Innovations that I love by this guy, Everett Rogers. And he talks a little about why certain uh, you know, innovations from technology innovations to otherwise get adopted. And there was some ideas there that I paired with some research I was doing that I paired with something else that we were applying. Um, and someone asked me, you know, hey, do you have a write-up of this somewhere? And I, I didn't. Um, and so this sort of became the uncertainty chapter um, that required there to be a whole broader book um, mm. uh, uh, ar- around it. But but I think uncertainty is is part of, of the key challenge of, of change, which is new things are always uncertain. Right, I think I think we forget this, but um, you know, imagine um, we're a, a marketer and we're saying, "Hey, buy these shoes, uh, buy this toothpaste, um, uh, you know, uh, buy, come to this restaurant, visit this vacation destination, whatever it is." We're trying to get people to switch from something they're doing already. Now, what they're doing already may not be perfect; it's probably not perfect. But if it was terrible, people would have already switched. Right? If the shoes they were wearing were horrible, if the you know, computer they're using was bad, if um, you know, whatever it is was terrible, they would switch already. And so the fact they haven't switched means what they're doing is kind of good enough. And we're coming in saying, well, we're better. But the challenge is, how do they know that we're better? We think we're better. But for them, they're going, well, of course, you say you're better, but how do I actually know? There's uncertainty for them. And so it's always safer to stick with the old thing, kind of the devil you know, than, than the one that you don't. Even if it's not perfect, right? Well, I, it's not perfect, but I might, as well, I might as well stick with it, right? It's relatively easy to stick with it, whereas it's hard to do something else, hard to do something new. And part of the reason why is something called switching costs. Um, and I think the term makes uh, pretty good sense. But anytime you do something new, there's a cost uh, of switching. So let's take that example I started with uh, when we started talking about going to a new grocery store. Really simple thing. Right? I'm just going to a new grocery store, but there's a cost of switching. It may not cost me more money to go to that grocery store. In fact, it may save me money, but there's a cost of time and effort. Maybe when I go to my usual grocery store, I always park in the same spot. Right? I always walk down the aisles in a particular way. I know where everything is, but that new grocery store, I have to figure out where everything is. There's some time and effort to make that switch. Let's say I buy a new phone. Right? Well, my old phone is already paid off. If I buy a new phone, that costs some money. That's a monetary cost of change. Um, in a service industry, right? I have to install new software, figure out how to use it. That's a cost of time uh, and effort again. And so there's always switching costs when it comes to change. Right? Old things don't have those switching costs, essentially free to keep doing what you're doing, whereas new things have the cost uh, of switching. Obviously, people don't like costs, right? They prefer to stick with what they're doing already rather than have these costs. But let me tell you, it gets worse because think about when the costs of change occur and when the benefits of change occur, right? So think about buying that new phone or using that new software, which often happens first. So the costs of change first or the benefits of change first? See what you think. What do you think? What happens first? The cost of change or the benefits of change? Um, in person's mind? So think about the last time you bought, you thought about buying something new. Thought about uh, the doing first thing is always the benefit. The second thing would be the cost for me. It feels like it's like, hey, I want a phone. Wait a minute. The phone, I have to change phone. Or depends on the phone, right? Like I love phones, so I just change them. But um, I'm, I don't... You tell me, but, how good, did I go think about that little test? Did I fail? Yeah, perfect. Yeah. So, so, did no, no, no. I so good, good question. I yeah. So, so why do you buy a new phone? What's the benefit you're hoping to achieve? One of the benefits. 
Um, it's a better camera. It's faster Perfect, thing, great, but it's not camera. that much better than the last one. Damn, but, Apple! They got me again to upgrade without but, me needing but do you, to upgrade. Do you know that it's? Do you know that it's a better camera, or do you no, just think it might be a better? Camera? I just well, just you think, think it, it might, might be. be. Yeah. yeah, and and but what do you do? The before you get to realize that benefit, you have to pay the cost. You have to buy the phone. You have to unpackage it. You have to take it home. You have to switch all of your stuff. And once I you've done that, saying. you get to see if it's better. And so in almost every case, not every single case, but in most cases, the cost happens before the benefit. I've got to pay the time. I've got to pay the effort. Even, even think about picking out that phone. I've got to pay the cost of time and effort to go to the store, to go online, to take a look at it, to read the specs. All of that is a cost. And I only get the benefit once I've actually bought the thing. And so often costs are now or soon and benefits are later. But let me tell you, it gets even worse because costs are pretty certain and benefits are pretty uncertain, right? We talked about this already. Well, of course, you, the marketer, say that this phone is going to be better, but how do I actually know? And so not only are you asking the consumer customer to take costs, not only the costs first and the benefits later, but the costs are certain and the benefits are uncertain. You're telling me, hey, I've got to do all this research online to learn about new phones. I've got to go to the store and check it out. I've got to pay money for it. I've got to switch over all my contacts and information. And only then do I get to see whether my pictures will actually be better, right? Lots of concrete, real, certain costs for a pretty uncertain benefit. No wonder people don't want to change, right? This is what's called the cost-benefit timing gap. And this is a big barrier uh, to change, right? Um, When people think about changing, often they do nothing. Why? Because they feel uncertain. They're not sure the new thing would be better. It's safer and easier to stick with what they're doing already. Uh, and there are all these costs of change. And so one of the big challenges is this, is this uh, cost-benefit fit timing gap. And so one thing we have to do then is we have to figure out how to make it easier for people to experience the benefit, easier for them to experience the value of change sooner. Right. Mm-hmm. If we stick with sort of the normal setup, it's going to be really hard to get them uh, to get them to go. And so there's an example of this I love. I'm not sure if your listeners will be familiar with it, but I'm sure they'll be familiar with something like it. Um, uh, in the U.S., there's a company called Dropbox, mm-hmm. um, and it's a sort of online storage. You, do you guys have Dropbox as well? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Very- okay. So. Yeah, very popular. Good. You guys are familiar with Dropbox. And so um, today, hugely successful, billion-dollar business, very successful file storage company. Um, And obviously, they caught on really quickly, right? Growth was just right away. Well, not, not quite. They had a lot of trouble getting off the ground. They had a lot of trouble getting new users. And the reason why was people were very used to storing stuff on their desktop. Right, So I, I spent a long time making a PowerPoint. I spent a long time in some family photos. I'm just going to store them on my desktop so I can see them. So they're physically there. Hey, Dropbox, you came to the market and you said, oh my God, online storage is better. Cloud storage is better. Well, of course, you're going to say it's better. You're not going to say my product is terrible. My service isn't good. <laughs> but how do I know that mm. it's better? Right, and and why would I spend this money to use the service, um, and then maybe my files get lost, right? And so no one was willing to adopt it because there was a lot of uncertainty. They were worried: would it actually work? Would it actually be better? You know, how do I how do I begin to think about this? And so um, at the time, Dropbox was a little stuck, right? They were trying to figure out what to do. They thought about buying a bunch of Google uh, AdWords, sort of uh, Google keywords, to sort of get people who are searching for stuff. They thought about spending a bunch of money on advertising. They ended up taking a slightly different tack uh, because they realized that those approaches wouldn't solve the underlying problem. Advertising would be great at telling people why uh, the service was good, but it wouldn't solve the uncertainty. And so to solve the uncertainty, they did something really clever. They gave it away for free. 
So anyone who was interested in Dropbox could get up to two gigabytes of storage absolutely free. Um, uh, you didn't uh, need to pay anything. You just sign up for, for Dropbox, two gigabytes of storage for free. Now, you're probably sitting there going, well, how do you build a billion-dollar business giving away something for free, right? Everyone who's ever uh, had a small business as a kid, a lemonade stand, whatever it is, knows you have to you know, sell something to make money. How do they build a billion-dollar business giving away something for free? Well, they didn't just give away something for free. They harnessed something called freemium. Um, and uh, many of your listeners are probably familiar with the idea of freemium. Um, you know, there are many businesses that use it. So, um, in, uh, you know, I think about businesses like the New York Times or Skype or Zoom or Dropbox or Evernote or um, even LinkedIn. All of these use some version uh, of freemium. And what is freemium? Well, freemium is a combination of two things. There's a free version of that product or service, but there's also a premium version. So, yes, Dropbox is saying, hey, two gigabytes of storage, uh, absolutely free, but they're going to encourage you to up upgrade to a paid version, right? Uh, a version of Dropbox that you, that you pay for um, that has additional features um, and, and so on. Now, people love freemium, of course, because something is free, but companies love freemium as well. Why? Because the real barrier to trials, well, you say it's good, but how do I actually know that it's good? And what freemium does is it encourages people to experience. It says, hey, don't, don't trust me. Don't trust my ads. You don't have to believe what I'm saying. Check it out yourself. Go use it. See if you like it. And if you like it, of course, you're going to be willing to upgrade, particularly if you've filled out all two gigabytes of storage because you've stored so many things on Dropbox, you've shown yourself how valuable it is. And so because you've convinced yourself about the value, you're happy to upgrade. And again, I love freemium. I think it's a great business model. Uh, I often work with clients to apply this model, but I often work with a set of clients that say something interesting. They say, well, I love the idea of freemium. And I get how it works when you're selling software as a service or a SaaS business model. But how do I do freemium if I've got a physical good? Let's say I'm a doctor, for example, or a hospital system. Let's say I'm a fleet management company. Let's say I'm a materials company. What's freemium in that case? There's no free version of the product and a premium version. That was of the my product. next question, by the yeah. way. Just to, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> great, it's a really good question. <laughs> yeah, but it's, yeah. A, it's, it's, it's a question I thought about a lot. Um, and what I realized is freemium is great. But it's actually just an example of a much broader phenomenon. So uh, think about new cars, right? And, and think about buying a new car, right? There's a challenge of buying a new car. You have a car already. Um, a new car looks like it might be good, but you don't know that it's going to be good. Uh, how do you figure it out? Well, uh, buying it is pretty expensive. Imagine you went to a, a car dealership and they said, hey, you're interested in this car. Fantastic. Give us $30,000 and we'll let you see inside it. You'd say, no way. Right? I don't know yet whether I like this car or not. I'm not willing to pay you all that money up front, which, by the way, goes back to that cost-benefit timing gap. No one wants to pay the upfront costs only then to experience the value. And so what do car dealerships do? Well, they do test drives. Right? Now, test drives aren't freemium. There's no free version of the car and premium version of the car. The car still costs however much it costs. But test drives, whether at the car dealership or the Apple store or whatever it might be, are a great way to do the same thing that freemium does, which is lower the barrier to trial, right? It's not about freemium per se. Freemium is an example of this notion of how can we make it easier for someone to experience the value of the offering and convince themselves. Test drives do that, 
right? Renting rather than buying. Buying is pretty expensive. Renting allows people to experience the value. Think about skis, right? If ski companies just sold skis, no one would get into skiing. Skis are hugely expensive. Rentals allow people to figure out if they like skiing. And if they like it, they end up buying it. Think about free samples at the grocery store. Think about free samples at hotels of shampoo or conditioner or uh, soap. All those things allow people to experience the value of an offering, figure out whether they like it or not. And once they've figured out whether they like it, they'll be more likely to buy it, right? Easier to try means, means more likely to buy. And so one of the biggest things that I work with clients on is how can you lower that barrier to trial? How can you make it easier for people to experience the value of the offering? Um, sometimes it's easier said than done, um, but experience the value of the offering. And once they've experienced it, they'll be much more likely to, to change. And it feels like it can apply to certain companies a lot more than others. So for example, insurance companies, probably could they have this kind of approach, especially because it's like uncertainty, but it's insurance. So it's to set up yeah. certainty. So how would but, like, you know, that more kind of esoteric kind of product or service apply to this, or does this not apply to those kind of products or services? So I will say I would say two things. Uh, first, it is certainly the case that some of these things are easier to apply in some situations rather than others. Um, but my challenge to all of you as, as listeners, but I would challenge you to think about applying each of these themes to everything, because sometimes it's difficult. But but going through the exercise gets you to something interesting. So as you were talking, I was thinking, okay, well, what's the uncertainty with insurance? Right? The uncertainty is well, when I file a claim. What's going to happen? The uncertainty isn't, well, what's it like to, to make my payment every month and have nothing happen? I have no uncertainty about that. I have uncertainty about, well, what's it like um, when uh, I make a claim? What's going to happen uh, mm -hmm. to that? Now, now uh, can they say, okay, well, make a claim with us even if you don't have one? Maybe not. They could say, hey, uh, call in and listen to someone else's claim. Right? So you see what it's like for someone else to, to work with us. Um, they could say, hey, the next time you have a problem, uh, file the claim with your existing company, but then also file it with us. Now, we won't solve it because you're not our customer, um, but we would tell you how we would solve it so you get a sense of how it would work. Now, neither of those are perfect, but it only did take me 30 seconds to yeah, think yeah, about no, it. I'm sure if, if I was in insurance um, and this was my job and I had a month or so, I could probably come up with an even better yeah. solution. And so I think the key insight is, it's. I agree with you, it's not easy to apply this everywhere. But the more we think about uncertainty, and that's what I like about this framework also, where is the uncertainty? Let's search for it. Let's find it. Mm. What is the barrier? Let's identify it. And once we've identified it, once we've figured out what that root problem is, then we can really think about how to solve it. Jonah, that was a quick hour, man. Um, that's that's um, probably one of the fastest hours that I've done on this podcast. Um, so much to cover and so little time. Um, the book is available on Amazon. Um, it's called Catalyst. Uh, so if there was one thing that you would want the people on this podcast to do, uh, some site to visit, something to do outside of buying the book, which they should all do on amazon.com, uh, what would you like them to do? Yeah. So um, uh, I think I'd say two things uh, mm. in terms of where I'd like them to go. Definitely check out my website, jonahberger.com. Uh, there are a whole bunch of free resources. Uh, maybe we can put it in the show notes or something, yeah, uh, but a whole bunch of free resources about changing a, a, a client's mind or consumer behavior or a colleague's mind or um, uh, an organization, a whole bunch of free resources there. Uh, so certainly check those out. That'll give you a toolkit to begin to think about mm -hmm. removing these barriers. But I think the second thing I would say is let's get better at identifying identifying the barriers, right? Let's not be blind to what the things are that are getting in the way. Let's not be so focused 
on the outcomes we want to achieve that we ignore the stuff getting in the way. I'd encourage you to think better, uh, think more about identifying those barriers. What is preventing change? And once we figure that out, we can really change uh, anything. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, it's been such a fantastic conversation and discussion about actually how we can kind of affect change in the world. Um, so for the listeners, check out the book on Amazon, the link's in the show notes. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Speak soon, Jonah. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Growth Manifesto podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. For more episodes, please visit growthmanifesto.com forward slash podcast. And if you need help driving growth for your company, please get in touch with us at webprofits.io.